All right, so this is it. This is, um, like I said, this has been quite a journey. We've, uh, for 50 days, we've been doing this 50 Days to Fire. We've been fasting and we've been praying, seeking the Lord intentionally. We've been doing this series throughout the 50 Days to Fire called Burn. It's been a few weeks since I was up here teaching this, and so let me just remind you what we talked about in the first three weeks of this series. We have talked about um, by the field. Rebuild the altar and stretch the tent, right? So by the field, we talked about the kind of the, the cost involved. Remember, that's the, the parable about the man who bought the field so he could get the treasure. So he could, it's about ownership. And we talked about just what that looks like in our lives. That's the day that Cody gave his testimony. Um, we just talked, like, like we saw real life, what it looks like for transformation to take place. Remember that? So that was by the field. Then we talked about rebuilding the altar. We're going to be back in that story today. That's 1 Kings chapter 18. And how Elijah, before he asked God to answer with fire, he took the time to rebuild the altar. We talked about how God is wanting us to do that. Like go back and rebuild the things that have been torn down. Give priority to the place where he meets us, right? Altars represent the places where he meets us. And so make that a priority in our lives. And then stretch the tent um, we talked about how God is, is calling us to enlarge our borders. And typically what we think is, oh, so that means megachurch, right? Enlarge the border means start a capital campaign, get a whole bunch of money, build a mammoth building, and then fill it with a lot of people. And like, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But what we talked about is that God wants us to stretch the tent because remember I brought up that balloon launcher? Remember that day? And we talked about, like, when you put a balloon in a balloon launcher, the greater the stretch, the greater the launch. And so he doesn't call us to stretch our tent so that we have more space physically here. He calls us to enlarge our vision because he wants to send his church all across the world, right? So this morning... We have been preparing for this day. This is Pentecost Sunday. That might sound weird to some of you if you weren't raised in church. Maybe even if you were raised in church, it sounds weird because I was raised in a church where we didn't talk about Pentecost Sunday. So Pentecost Sunday, what is that? It is the day we read about it in Acts chapter 2. We're not going to be in that passage today, but it would be a good thing for you to read maybe sometime this week. But in Acts chapter 2, we, see, we hear the story, the, the account of the disciples waiting in the upper room. And this is the day that we celebrate basically the beginning of church as we know it. When the Holy Spirit was given, Jesus promised he would send the Holy Spirit. And this is the day that he sent the Holy Spirit. And everybody who had gathered in Jerusalem from other countries heard the gospel proclaimed in their own language. They all understood it. I've been on mission trips and I've spent days on mission trips without an interpreter. I cussed kids out unintentionally, right? Like, I'll, I'll never forget being in Brazil, and we were, we were playing this game like, you know, like I would go watch and point to it, and then they would say what they're, and I, I started pointing to my sock going, sock, sock, and they were like, because <gasps> apparently that's a really bad word in Portuguese. I didn't know that, right? So, like, but, but the miracle of Pentecost is that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit spoke through men and women just like us. And people from every nation heard the gospel. That's what Pentecost Sunday is. And so when we talk about from you know, 50 days to fire, from Easter to Pentecost, from resurrection to revival, what we're saying is we've got to have the fire of God in us so that he can speak through us the gospel that he wants to proclaim. You with me? 
So today, this is the end of it, right? So this is the end of this little burn series. We're going to be in two passages. I'm going to give you time to find it. 1 Kings 18 and Isaiah 61. Those of you that are like, you're all about digital Bibles, you're like, huh, I got you, right? You're already going to be there quickly. If you've got a real Bible, these are 1 Kings chapter 18 and Isaiah chapter 61. Those are the two passages. We're going to be in most of those passages today. Here's what I want to encourage us to do today. So all of this has been preparation for this moment. I want to call you to receive the fire. That's where we're going to end up this series. Because we can, we can talk about burning all day long. We can talk about what God wants to do in the world. But he's looking for vessels that he can do that through. And in order for us to be those vessels, we've got to receive the fire. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18. How many of you are reading through the Bible with us this year? You're on the reading plan, even if you're way behind. You're like, well, technically, Pastor, I'm still reading with you, but I'm still in Genesis, right? Like, but raise your hand again. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year. Okay, now let me just tell you this. There are different ways to read the Bible. And if you're reading through the Bible with us Every day this year, I would say that you have like a boots-on-the-ground approach to the Bible, right? Like how many of you did, um, I keep asking you to keep raising your hands, but before we moved in here, we did a thing called 200K in 40 days, and we prayer-walked our city for 40 days. How many of you did that? So do you remember this? This is what I learned during that time. When you are on the ground and you're prayer-walking, you're walking the neighborhood, I saw things I'd never seen before, and I was raised in this city. There's just something about when you stop doing the drive-by and you actually stop and see things. I can notice cracks on the sidewalk. Like somewhere around day 37, I'm like, yep, 15 more steps and we'll be at that pothole. Like you just start to recognize really small details. And so as you're reading through the Bible, even if you go through sections where you're like, oh, I'm kind of lost on this one, eventually, haven't you noticed this to be true? You find something, you're like, I've never seen that before. We had a conversation this morning. We both noticed the same thing. In Scripture that we've read a bazillion times, maybe not that many, but you know what I'm saying. And it was just different. It was new. And it's because boots on the ground, you're seeing it, you're observing it, it's all around you. Today we're going to have a little bit of a different approach. I've never been skydiving. But today we're going to parachute in on a story, okay. So we're going to parachute in on 1 Kings 18. Now, if I ever go skydiving, let me tell you what I think I'll be doing. Besides panicking, praying, and peeing, three P's right there, right? I think that might have been too much information, right? You're like, just, just preach the word, Paul. Just preach, right? So I think that I would jump out of the plane, and, and first I'd be praying that the parachute opens, right? And then when the parachute opens, I'd be like, oh, thank goodness, right? But then as I'm parachuting in, I'm assuming I'd be with somebody that knows more than I do. So we'd have a a designated area where we're supposed to land and not die. And as we parachute down, I would be scanning everything around. I'd I'd be looking for like power lines and trees and like anything that I would want to kind of know the surroundings. And as you're drifting down, you have this chance to check it all out. So as we're parachuting in on 1 Kings 18, I want to help you do that, okay? So you just enjoy the ride, and I'm going to try to give you, like, this surrounding area. What's been going on around 1 Kings 18? 
That was a really long way for me to say this is about contacts. But you know what I'm saying. It was a little more fun talking about parachuting. Okay, so here we go. This is what's happening in this, in this general area, 1 Kings 18, where we're going to be landing. There's a man named Ahab. He was a king of Israel. And 1 Kings 16.30 says that he was more evil than the evil kings that came before him. Listen, everybody wants to win an award for being the best at something. Can I just encourage you? Don't be the best at being the baddest. Right? Like when the Bible says, and he was more evil than the evil kings that came before him. That's, that's bad, right? So it would not surprise us that he's also married to a woman who was bad. Because typically a really, really bad dude's not attracting a really, really godly girl. That was a word for some of the young girls in the room, right? So stay away from these men, right? So her name's Jezebel. I told you in week one, we know that Ahab and Jezebel are bad because nobody names their kids that, right? That's how you know. That's your test. When people stop naming their kids after somebody, that means something's really bad. So he's married to Jezebel. 1 Kings 18.4 tells us that she hated God's people. Not disliked, not kind of, I don't go to church. She hated God's people. Because he married Jezebel, 1 Kings 16 tells us that he also began to inherit her gods. And her gods were Baal and, let's hope I say this right, Asherah, right? So if you've been reading through the Bible with us, you've seen these names, Baal and Asherah. You've read about Asherah poles, right, and Baal temples. So these were her gods. And the king of Israel, Israel be God's people, the king of Israel adopted her pagan gods. So this is all happening before we get to 1 Kings 18. Now, Elijah was a prophet of God. And so what's been happening for a few chapters before we get to this chapter 18 is it's not been raining. It's been three years of no rain. And Ahab is blaming Elijah because for some reason he thinks the man of God has caused God to stop making it rain. And Elijah is saying to Ahab, uh, no, no, but this one's on you. Right? Like you turned your back on God, and so God's not making it rain. So they, they don't like each other. You with me? They don't like each other at all. And so that's, that's kind of the context as we're dropping down. Three-year drought, um, they don't like each other, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. So First Kings, First Kings chapter 18, verses 16 to 18. Let me just read this to you. So Obadiah went to, went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? That's what they called people back in the day when they didn't like them. Now we would just say jerk, but you're with me, right? Verse 18, I've made no trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, see this back and forth. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Sounds like a marriage, whatever. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now listen, I'm going to talk super fast because I want to make sure you get all of this. What I want you to see in those few verses is that what we're going to read about is not a fight between two men, Ahab and Elijah. This is a fight between two worldviews, okay? There's the worldview that Elijah has, which is there's one God, his name is Yahweh. And then there's the worldview that Ahab has, which is I don't like your God, so I've created gods that look like me. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's where our culture is today, right? Two opposing worldviews. Let's continue. Verse 19. Now, this is still Elijah talking. Summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets or prophetess, prophetesses of Asherah who were supported by Jezebel. So 850 people come to the party. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. 
Then Elijah stood in front of them and he said, how much longer to the people of Israel will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Sidebar, that's the worst thing for a preacher. Like when you passionately call people to make a decision and they look at you like this. Like completely silent. You know, Elijah's like, are you kidding me? Like I was good preaching, right? I'm calling you to a call to action and you're just like staring at me. Verse 20, um, verse, where are we? 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call in the name of your God. I'll call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. A couple things for us to notice. Carmel, Mount Carmel, was, was regarded by the worshipers of Baal as the dwelling place of Baal. So Elijah's having a showdown with 450 prophets of Baal. On Baal's mountain. They regard this as the place that Baal lives. Baal was considered the God of fertility. He was also considered the God who sent rain, caused crops to grow. He was the, the God who prepared food for the people. They believed that he also was a God who answered by fire. Typically they thought that would be lightning, right? So they expected Baal to send fire from heaven. What I want you to kind of see is that they had the home court advantage for the sports fanatics in the house, right? Home court advantage. It's on Baal's Mountain. They're going to pray to the God of fire from their worldview perspective. And they've got 450 and he's got one. Like completely stacked against Elijah. And he did that on purpose. God's doing something. He's setting something up. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call in the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. And then things got crazy. They called in the name of Baal from morning until noon, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. And then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. That's a weird way to describe dancing. But if you've seen me dance, it's probably appropriate, right? About noontime, Elijah began trash talking. I know that's not what it says, but that's what he's going to do, right? So if you're, again, if you're into sports, if you play basketball, if you're one of those people that plays like sports as an adult and you think that you should have been in the NBA or the NFL, then you might be given to trash talking every now and then because you're just like, you know, you just got to say it. So he starts to trash talk them. Here's what he says. You'll have to shout louder because surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. That's a weird way to think about it, but whatever. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. And so they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. And you know the whole time. Elijah's just sitting back like this. I'm not surprised because you think that Baal answers by fire, but I know the God who answers by fire, right? And so then it's his turn. 
he steps up. When I read this, the things I think about, I know in my mind, I'm a little strange. Any Survivor fans in the house? Okay, so, wow, like three. Okay, I was expecting more, but whatever. So they have these things on Survivor called fire starting challenges. And you have to, like, it's how you get into the final three. And anyway, there's a lot of pressure. And, and every time I watch that, I'm not even on the show, but I feel it. I feel the panic because, like, I know that I'd be like the guy going. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, and and I, would, I would get out of Survivor just because I wouldn't be able to. I, I don't, I'd be horrible at starting a fire. I'm so bad at starting fires that Sydney has some friends over to the house one night. And I couldn't get the fire started, so they were all in the kitchen, and I just snuck out and got the gas. And I put some gas on the fire that was barely going, and then when I did, it wasn't barely going, right? And I didn't think that they saw me, but when I went inside, they literally called out from the kitchen, Mr. Jenkins, are you okay? One, I don't know who Mr. Jenkins is, right? I have no clue who that is, right? But they had, they had literally watched the, the gas go up the stream. I mean, the fire jumped up the stream of gas and then onto the gas can and then onto my arm. And I had also seen that, right? So I was like, whoa. Then it was, it was out like that. But why, that's, I'm not good at starting fires or, or else I am good, but that's not the way you're supposed to do it. But the point here is we just read a bunch of verses. Did you see how hard they were trying to make fire happen? I mean, do we do that, church? Do we try super hard to make fire happen? And what I want you to see is when it's Elijah's turn, just listen to how less, is that the right, how, how much less he has to make it happen. Okay, just listen to what he says. So he says, verse uh, 29, verse 30. So Elijah called to the people, come over here. I love that. Come see what God's going to do, right? They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. This is what we talked about in week two. He repaired the altar first. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. He used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said... Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood, which is a dumb thing to do if you're trying to start fire. That's something I would do, right? I thought I grabbed the gas, but I guess I grabbed water, right? That's crazy. And then he does, it's, it's even crazier. Verse 34, after they had done this, he said, do it again. And when they were finished, he said, do it a third time. So 12 large jars of water are poured over all of the wood, all of the altar, and it says, um, verse 35, and the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. So at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. How long did the prophets of Baal cut themselves, dance, hobble, whatever, scream, like for hours? We just read a one or two sentence prayer, and verse 38 says, immediately the fire of God flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. 
It even licked up all the water in the trench. Listen, the odds were stacked against Elijah. 450 to 1, 12 jars of water drenched the altar. Like if you and I were just looking at that, we would be like, there's no way. And for whatever reason, Elijah has lost his mind and made it even harder, right? But God answered by fire. I would submit that today in our culture, the odds are stacked against the church. That there are competing worldviews, and we don't get a lot of airplay, right? I don't mean that on media. I don't really care about that. But we don't get a lot. People don't listen to us talk. We've lost a bit of credibility, right? The stats that you read prove that. But God still answers by fire. He did then and he will now. And look what happened when he did. I love this. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Let me just sum it up this way. The fire of God is the sign that exalts God before men. Why should we receive the fire? Because the fire of God is the sign that exalts God before men. The people that were watching this showdown... Now, we're not going to continue the story, but if you keep reading the story, the 450 prophets of Baal, they're not a part of this group, right? They're, they're, they don't believe in God even after they saw that, right? So they're going to be out. But the people that he had said, hey, come near and watch this. Let's see who, who's God answers by fire. When they saw the fire, when they saw the sign, they are the ones that said, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. The fire of God is the sign that exalts God before men. And so it's good to know that God reveals himself, yes? But that's not God's end game. His end game is not simply to reveal himself. Right? His end game is that how do we know he wants more than just that? Well, because in Genesis, he created us, and then Jesus came for us, right? He's not just like, yeah, I just want you all to see that I'm God. Check me out. He wants something more than that, right? He, he was God before he created man. He didn't have to create anything to be exalted as God. So he wants something more than just, I'm God. There's something else that he craves. So creating man in Genesis to have relationship with God, and then when man jacked that up, sending Jesus to restore us back to God, that's a pretty good sign that God wants something more than just, I want to be God. The entire storyline of the Bible is this. We'll sum up the whole Bible. You ready? God created it all. We ruined it all. God gave it all to restore it all. That's the Bible. That's it. And you're like, Paul, why are we reading a, the Bible in a whole year when you just said it in one sentence? Because the details, y'all. We need the details, right? Like that's the overarching theme. That's, God created it all. We ruined it all. He gave it all to restore it all. That's the Bible. So it isn't enough to see the reality of the fire we also need to see the result of the fire, and that's where we're going to go in Isaiah chapter 61, okay? So Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim the captives, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all 
who mourn in Israel. He will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. A couple things I want you to see. Verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. The spirit, um, fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit all throughout the Bible, okay? So, when I, I'm, so you're going to hear me use those terms interchangeably like receive the fire means receive the spirit, right? If I say spirit, you can think fire because all through the, the Bible, fire is a type. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Um, look at verses 2 through 4. What is the result of the fire? The result of the fire is that the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the mourners, the grievers will become oaks of righteousness. And this is key, y'all. And they will become the rebuilders, the restorers, and the renewers. See, sometimes in our North American church mentality, here's what we think. We're the good people, and they're the bad people. And if we could just have people in office politically the world would be a better place. Or if we could just help them and keep helping them, then we'll be even better people. If we could just start a good news club at East, oh, won't God be pleased with us? And so we typically go through our entire Christian existence always believing that we're the good ones helping the bad ones. Or we're the nice people helping the down and out people. And so we keep, I mean, listen, we keep that role because that gives us power, makes us feel good. But what you've got to see here is the result of the fire of God is that the people that we help with the gospel, they become the ones who rebuild the city. That's huge. That's a game changer. That's like God goes, thanks for your help. I got it from here. Go help other people because they're ready to rebuild the city. We're not the good, we're not the heroes of the story. Jesus is. And I love that. So the, po- the point here is the fire of God is the fuel that enables God to work through men. Now give me a little bit of grace on this one, okay? Because I'm trying to make it so it's easy to remember. God doesn't really need to be enabled. Y'all know that, right? I mean, he's God. But what it is is the fire of God, the spirit of God is the fuel that enables him to work through me. The fire of God in me is what's going to accomplish the work. So it's one thing for the fire to be a sign. Hey, look, your God must be God. But he doesn't want to just show off. He wants to move in the world, and he does it through us. Look at the person next to you. Can you believe it? He's going to move through them. They're just as amazed that he's going to move through you. He moves through us, and he does it through the Holy Spirit. And so it's the fuel. I want you to see it's the fuel. Now, we've got to walk through a couple more scriptures to really see this truth, okay? So hang with me. Jot these down. They'll be up on the screen. All right, here's the first one. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is talking. He's, uh, he's announcing his ministry, and he quotes the passage that we just read, okay? So he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captive, that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He stopped it there because he was here. Okay? What I need you to see is that Jesus quoted Isaiah 61 as his mission statement. Are you with me? 
He's like, they're like, who are you? Aren't you that guy that grew up in Nazareth? No, 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 time out. No, no, the Spirit is on me. And here's what I have come to do, right? That's his mission statement, his purpose statement. This is what Jesus came to do. And sometimes what we'll say is, well, that was Jesus, right? Like, that's what he did. Okay, John 14, chapter 12. Jesus is talking, and he says this. I tell you the truth, anyone, everybody say anyone. That was so sad, y'all. Anyone who believes in me. Raise your hand if you're, if you're saved, if you believe in Jesus. That, he's talking about you, okay? Some of y'all were like, I, I know I love Jesus, but I don't know what you're going to say, so I'm not going to raise my hand. That's cute. Y'all are cute. Such, such church people, whatever. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. What works were those? We just quoted it from Isaiah 61 that Jesus used in Luke to say this is my mission. Everything we read in Isaiah 61, you don't have, you don't have the luxury. Well, that was the Old Testament. You don't get to do that because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't leave that in the Old Testament. He brought it into the New Testament and said, this is why I have come. And you don't even have the luxury of saying, well, that's what Jesus did. Because Jesus said, no, 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 no. If you believe in me, you'll do what I've been doing, which is what he quoted, and you'll do more than that. Jesus never lowers the bar. He doesn't give the church the luxury of saying that's what Jesus did. He says, that's what I've called you to do. Anyway, that's good preaching. Whatever. Let's keep going. Last one. John 16, 7. Jesus is still talking. By the way, if you want to learn about the Holy Spirit, just read John 14, 15, and 16. Oh, my goodness. So much in there about the Holy Spirit. We don't have time for it. We really don't have time for it. Let's keep going. John 16, 7. Jesus is talking. Here's what he says. But in fact... And let me tie these together. At the end of John 14, 12, he says, you'll do the same works I've done, even greater works, because I'm going to the Father. So he says, because I'm going to leave, and you're still going to be here, you're going to do more than I've ever done, because there's more of you, more time, I'm going to the Father. And then we pick it up in John 16, 7, and he says, but in fact, it's best for you that I go away, because of course the disciples are like, please don't leave us. And he's like, no, no, you need me to go. And why do you need me to go? Because if I don't the advocate, the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the fire of God won't come. And if I do go away, then I'll send him to you. See, it's, it's not enough to say, well, that prophecy in Isaiah, that was just Old Testament. Because it was a prophecy about Jesus. And then Jesus showed up and he's like, that's what I came to do. So people that were following, making connections at Jesus' time would have been like, wait a second. I've read that before in Isaiah. Wait. That was about Jesus? They would look at him a little differently. And sometimes as a church, we want to say, well, that was Jesus, not us. But he says, no, 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 no. Time out. Anyone who believes in me will do the same things I've been doing. The fire of God is a fuel in you that enables God to work through you to reach men. Then why do we have the Holy Spirit? Why is Pentecost such a big deal? He is the fuel that enables God to work through men. Let me put it to you like this, okay? Big idea. The people of God with the fire of God can accomplish the will of God. Why do we have the Holy Spirit? That's why. Because the people of God with the fire of God can accomplish the will of God. It is the Spirit in us that enables us to do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Mega churches. Maybe. House churches. Maybe. 
better job. Maybe. Super Bowl championship for the Panthers. Absolutely. Right? The will of God is obedience to what he called you to do. We just want to say it's a thing. It's obedience. It's what did he call you to do. Be obedient to that. That's his will. And what does he call us to do? Isaiah chapter 61. He has called us to reach the broken, the mourners, the grievers. He's called us to pour into them so that they would in turn become the rebuilders of the city. So if, if that statement's true, the people of God with the fire of God can accomplish the will of God. Now, I'm going to the big ending, okay? So hang with me, right? If that statement's true, and it is, because we just took like 20 minutes to look through it in Scripture, we know that's true. Can I just tell you the only response, the only response that a Christian who is sold out to Jesus can have at this moment, and I'm talking about you, the only response has got to be, fill me with your fire. What other response is there? Okay. We got one more verse because I knew this was going to happen. I knew I was going to preach this good, and I knew I was going to tell you that. And some of y'all going to be like, I don't know if that's the only response. Maybe there's another response like, let me think about it, right? So I knew that was going to happen. So let's, let's do one more verse, okay? Um, it's possible to think that we don't need to receive the fire because we've already received the Holy Spirit when we were saved. And it's true that you did receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved, right? But here's what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. I'm not even preaching about that, but dang, that's a good thing to marinate on. Because we are living in a culture where Christians are like, I'll do whatever I want. Okay, you can choose to ruin your life. It's absolutely true. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why did Paul say that? Why did Paul write in the New Testament to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Can I tell you why? Because we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know, Paul, but I've already got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I knew you were going to say that too. I'm way ahead of you. I'm way, way ahead of you. He wrote this, check this out, in the present tense. What does that mean? Do it now. Not let me think about that, and if so, at some point in the future I feel like I'm, I might need the Holy Spirit, I'll receive the Holy Spirit then and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, be filled now with the Holy Spirit, right? Be filled now. But I don't need the Holy Spirit because I've already got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, I knew that too, so check this out. He wrote this command, be filled, not a suggestion, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He wrote this to people at the church of Ephesus who, check that, I love this, had already been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. How do we know that? Because he already said it in the same letter to the same people, Ephesians 1, 3. They'd already received every spiritual blessing. Is the Holy Spirit a spiritual blessing? That was such an easy one. Is the Holy Spirit a spiritual blessing? Yes. This half is with me. This half is not sure yet, right? I get it. I got to do a little. I got to preach this better, and y'all can come up. We got to close this out. They'd already received the Holy Spirit because that's a spiritual blessing. And then check this out. Not only had they been given every spiritual blessing, but we also know that the people that he just told to be filled with the Holy Spirit have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We know that from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In the first chapter of Ephesians, he said with big neon letters, you've got the Spirit. I got Spirit. Yes, I do. I got, right? 
And then in chapter 5, he said, with big flaming letters, be filled with the Spirit. Which means the church in Ephesus was like, wait, I thought we, I thought we had that already. And now we, we don't have that. And what's, what's going on? I love, um, I love John Piper, man. Dude's brilliant. And his, his statement about Ephesians 5.18 is that we'd like to think that we get all the Holy Spirit, but we tend to get it in parts. We tend to receive the Holy Spirit in parts. But we should keep receiving the Holy Spirit in parts until we have all. I'm like, dude, that's good. That's good. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's how we're going to end this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know some of y'all are like, the reason, let, well, let me just, we got we to finish this up. Y'all just start playing so I'll stop talking. I'm trying to, like, tell you that I understand the angst, right? The reason why the minute I say be filled with the Holy Spirit, a lot of us in the room go, <gasps> It's because we've seen people do some weird stuff when they get filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And we're like, I don't know. I don't know if I would want that. Well, I agree, right? I agree. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us the freedom to be weird. The Holy Spirit just came to set us free. And he wants to set us free so that we'll be free in our feet to move to people who need to be free in their soul. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to stand. And again, I'm going to preface this with telling you again what I said earlier. I believe that the only accurate response to this message is fill me with the fire of God. I need the fire of God. So the band's going to sing a song that just says, fill me up, Lord. Fill me up. And we're going to pray that he does that. I'm going to call you, listen, to respond by coming to the altar and saying, fill me, Lord, with your fire. Fill me with your fire so you can send me to the world. Now, let me say it to you like this. I don't usually get this, whatever I'm fixing to get, but I felt it as I was preparing the message. According to the authority of the Word of God, I call you to receive the fire. If you want to be prayed for, come on to the front. And as they sing, we're just going to pray. What does it look like? I have zero idea. Zero idea. But I know that I want to be full of His Spirit so He can send me wherever He wants.